the average driver, as if you're a consumer, will have about a collision once every 10 years. If you're a terrible driver, uh, there's a driver out there in the U.S. today, a teenage male, who will have 14 collisions this year. But it is not unusual for drivers, some drivers, a small percentage of drivers, to have multiple collisions per year. And they're obviously much, much worse, right? Compare three per year to one every 10 years. Hi, I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts. And I edit Esther's stories. We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and ChatGPT. And don't forget about Google Bard. Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean? Yep, we've got it covered. I'm Sean Sutner. I'm here with co-host Esther Zhao, and this is another episode of the Tech Target News Targeting AI podcast, on which we talk about everything related to enterprise use of artificial intelligence, which is not, by the way, just generative AI, but we talk about that too. We are pleased to welcome today to this Stefan Heck, founder and CEO of Nauto, developer of AI software and hardware systems for driver and fleet safety. We have a lot of smart people on our podcast, and Stefan is one of them. He's been a professor at Stanford, a senior partner at McKinsey, and is a PhD in cognitive science from the University of California. Welcome, Stefan. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Okay, so we're hearing a lot these days about autonomous vehicles uh, and also about all the safety problems and challenges that come with operating vehicles without human drivers as well as human drivers. Um, what's the actual viability, do you think, of truly autonomous vehicles and how is Nato's approach different? Yeah, driving autonomously is a very, very hard problem. Uh, so I do believe that in the long run, we will get there. Uh, but I think the journey has proven harder than the initial optimistic view from five, 10 years ago, um, you know, led people to believe. And it's it's one of these uh, grand challenges for humanity that's always been kind of 10, 15 years off. So there's actually videos from the 1950s where people were talking about robot cars uh, that we would get into and you could have drinks in while the car was driving you. And obviously that didn't happen in the 1960s. So, so here we are. It is getting better. There has been substantial progress and there are pockets of autonomous driving that work today. If you look at some of the mining equipment, for example, in remote mines, there's some farming tractors that drive autonomously. There are shuttles that drive autonomously at, at lower speeds. There's grocery delivery autonomously. So there are some use cases that are a little bit simpler than general purpose on the road under any condition driving. But I do think even for the, the average you know, American highway and, and going cross country, uh, we will get there. It's just not as close as people think. Nato took a very different approach. I realized very early on that the last four or five percent of getting autonomous driving right would be very, very hard because collisions are very rare. They're very complex and they're interaction scenarios. It's usually very rarely one thing that makes you crash. It's, you know, you were distracted by your phone while you were speeding a little bit and then something else happened on the road or there's a construction site or, you know, the weather contributes. So four or five things often come together to really cause a collision. And you have to understand all of those in order to have perfect uh, good driving. And to the point you already made a moment ago, Sean, um, even humans take a while to, to learn to drive, right? If you start as a teenager um, with getting your learner's permit, statistics show it takes almost four years for you to learn to drive as well as an adult. 
And statistically, you're going to have somewhere between two and three collisions, hopefully minor fender benders, uh, before you've really mastered driving. Um, so it's not something that happens overnight. Um, and, you know, same for, same for technology. Now, how's Nato different? We're really different in that we're not trying to replace the driver at all. We're a co-pilot or, you know, a, a guide, uh, advisor or safety warning system for the driver. Um, we use similar AI to what an autonomous vehicle does in terms of understanding what's happening. So looking out at the road and seeing, you know, are there pedestrians here? Are there other vehicles? Where are the lanes? Where are the traffic lights? Uh, where is it safe to drive? And that allows us to understand, is this situation risky? And then we look at what the driver's doing, because we want to make sure the driver, first of all, hasn't fallen asleep, but also more importantly, is looking at the things that are relevant to driving. So if there's a stop sign out there and the driver's looked at it, we know they're going to stop. It's fine, right? And if the same thing for a pedestrian. If the driver, however, is, you know, worst case, playing video games or watching Netflix, um, or even if they're just distracted momentarily looking at the map, trying to see where they're going, um, that's a very, very dangerous situation. So those are some moments where we intervene. Our primary mission in, in life uh, is really to help the drivers get better, get them home safely at night, help them be aware of risks that they did not spot. So it's, it's primarily a self-coaching tool to empower the driver to learn where the hidden risks that they're not seeing. And it's in the form of voice feedback. So we'll say, you know, watch out for the pedestrian or put down your phone, uh, pull over to use your phone. Um, in imminent uh, collision risk situation, it's an alarm. So you'll get a loud screeching -da -da beep uh, that basically alerts you to look at the road, hit the brakes or swerve. And that has, um, over the last couple of years, helped our customers who are large uh, commercial fleets, people driving professionally, um, avoid about 30,000 collisions. So it has a very, very material safety impact. And, and we, we get up every morning excited to save lives. I love what you said about human drivers needing four to five years, because I could tell you I needed three <laughs> drivers. <laughs> and I did have those two to three vendors as well. So testimony right here. <laughs> but there you moving go. on, how does the neural network technology behind your system work? And how does that AI software interface with the hardware components? Yeah, so in our case, the, the AI runs directly in the hardware package. It's basically a small box we place um, on the windshield. Um, again, these are commercial vehicles. They can be uh, you know, ride-sharing vehicles. Uh, they can be delivery vans. Um, a lot of our service fleets are pickup trucks, um, all the way up to the large Class 8 uh, semi-trucks uh, that are doing the long-haul uh, trucking across the country. Uh, and in that sensor package, you both have the, the sensor, so um, GPS, uh, you have uh, an inertial sensor that tells you about the vehicle movements. You have uh, a computer vision capability to look out at the road and look at what the driver's doing. Uh, and all of that in real time on board the vehicle in that, in that compute box gets processed in real time. Um, and so 15 times a second, uh, what the neural networks are doing is basically identifying uh, different kinds of uh, dangers. Could be as, as simple as a stop sign, right? Recognizing there's a stop sign coming up. Can be as complicated as, you know, there's two people crossing the road and at the speed they're going, they're going to be in your, in your path of where your vehicle's going. Um, and then also looking at where, as I said earlier, where's the driver's attention facing, you know, focused. Uh, if they're looking at the road, looking at those risks, fantastic. We know they're going to do the right thing. 
but if there, if you know there's a stop sign on the right and you're looking out the window on the left, you're not going to be able to see that. Um, and so, 15 times a second, we basically put all of those factors together and say, okay, here's the list of dangers. What has the driver paid attention to? Have they already responded to it? You know, have they initiated braking or taken their foot off the gas? And if the driver's doing the right thing, it's it's our system is silent. We don't bother you. Uh, we're not here to to uh, you know um, tell you things you already know. It's very easy to trip into backseat driving, uh, and we all know how annoying that is, right? To have somebody say, "Hey, slow down," when you already your foot's already off the brake and you're already your foot's already off the gas and you're braking. Uh, but if the driver hasn't seen it, then it's super helpful. And what the algorithms do is basically they estimate uh, the likelihood of a, of a collision or a serious incident. And then as that risk level exceeds certain thresholds, uh, we intervene. And if the driver has fallen asleep or is inattentive, we intervene much earlier and faster than if the driver has been attentive uh, because we, you know, we assume an attentive driver will address it on their own anyway. And that warning is generally designed to give you about three seconds to address whatever the risk is. And so in a, in a simplified version, what, what the AI is doing or the neural networks are doing is kind of looking three seconds into the future and saying, if, if this is a movie and I'm going to play another three seconds in the movie, is this going to be you know, a, a tragedy or is this going to be okay? Um, and then intervening if it's if it's unsafe. The other thing that is really important um, is we want the drivers to embrace um, the capability and really see it as a friend in the vehicle or co-pilot. And for that, there's three things that have to be in place. The first is you have to be highly accurate. If I'm giving you false alarms, you're, you're going to disrespect the system. You're going to hate the system. So we we train all our AI to be super accurate. Nothing's perfect, but we're in the 99.5, 99 99.7% accuracy. So you're going to get, you know, one in a hundred uh, alerts will be something where you say, no, that wasn't really a pedestrian. That was a poster on the side of the bus stop. Um, so those those are really rare for us. The second is it has to be timely. Uh, you know, telling you there's a stop sign after you run the stop sign doesn't help. That's just annoying. <laughs> and so... You really have to be that kind of three seconds in advance, giving you enough time to do something. And there are examples of things that, that we can detect, but we don't detect early enough to warn the driver that we don't give alerts for. A, a good example is uh, at night driving on a highway, 65 miles per hour. If you have an animal jump across the road, we'll see that animal, but we only see that animal because it's in the dark on the side of the road first. So it jumps in. Typically, you only have about a second. And so alar alarming you in that situation where you only have a second and you don't even have a chance to do anything about it, you know, you're going to hear the smash of the animal before you get our alert. It's not, it's not helpful in that case. And the third is, and this is the most important, it has to be in moments where the driver recognizes that danger. So in, a, in our best design, when the driver gets feedback or a voice coaching or an alert, they go, oh, wow, that really was dangerous. My God, I could have, I could have gotten hurt. I could have gotten injured. And we actually see that the drivers actually wave or smile or say thank you, even though there's nobody in the car with them. But it's kind of that, oh, I'm gratitude. I got to express that. And that's when the magic happens, because if a driver feels gratitude for having averted a danger, uh, they change their behavior. And we see that dramatic shift in the, in the number of risks drivers take just because they've learned. So coming back to Esther, your your you know teenage years example, right? If if we can get you to learn in three four months as opposed to three years, that's a huge breakthrough. That's pretty fascinating. So Stefan, we we had talked earlier about the target market for. I mean, 
a lot of your customers are these last mile drivers, the fleets of uh, Amazon delivery, UPS, whatever delivery uh, drivers, but also the larger long haul trucks. But what's your strategy also for the consumer market? I think you do have uh, uh, deals with the, some of the major automakers where they integrate some of your technology. And so can you talk a little bit about that? And also, would you ever consider being acquired by a big automaker so they you can be part of them and you can be their R&D? Or is your partnership approach better suited for your business where you're like an autonomous R&D? That's a several questions in one. I'll try to take them one at a time. Um, Today we only we're we're business to business, so we serve uh, commercial fleets, commercial drivers. Um, now that's pretty broad, as you were alluding to, right? There are some cases where it's independent contractors, consumers driving commercially. So if you drive for Uber or Lyft, um, you know you're a, you're a consumer, personal um, individual, but you're actually driving commercially in that case, um, and so that's fine. We we do cover those scenarios. A lot of our drivers, of course, are, are employees uh, of a company that's either in the transportation business or where transportation is a part of what they do. A lot of food companies, for example, run their own delivery trucks. Um, and so in that case, it's employee drivers and company-owned vehicles. Um, we do want to make this technology available to consumers. The, the teenage case and also the aging parents' uh, use case is really important to us. Um, you know, starting at age 72, the risk goes back up. Uh, and so you master driving at, you know, 17, 18, 22, depending on how many years it took you. And when you started, then you're great throughout all of your adult years. Uh, but as we age, the, the perception um, degrades um, and the reaction time increases. And so what you find is uh, by the time you're in your 80s, you're actually as risky as a teenager again. Um, and you're not aware of just how dangerous that is. So we'd like to cover that case as well. Um, I had a grandfather who since passed away, but he was part of the inspiration for me to start an auto uh, to see, uh, you know, if we could get him to to drive safely. And he started having collisions, um, and he did drive an auto for a little while, and and unfortunately has passed not through a car crash. I want to be very clear, <laughs> just the other natural causes. And so um, our strategy for making it available to consumers is what you alluded to, Sean, which is working in partnership with automakers, um, because our uh, sensor package is relatively expensive for a consumer. It's about four or five hundred dollars to get your car retrofit. Um, you know, there are some consumers willing to pay that kind of money, but most consumers want something that's free or very, very cheap. And it's if, it, if we're built into a vehicle, the, all the electronics, the compute uh, is already there. Uh, you know, some uh, automakers are having to upgrade the sensors a little bit, but you're talking about, you know, $25, $30, $50 extra, not $500 extra. Uh, and then it's really the AI running on board the vehicle. And so where we're headed today, you can already go to some of our commercial partners, Ram, for example, um, Brightdrop, the General Motors electric vehicle subsidiary. Uh, and also for commercial vehicles, you can go to Navistar and order an order directly with your pickup truck, your van, your truck. Um, that will broaden into, into sedans, and it will also um, get deeply embedded in the vehicle. So hopefully in about four or five years from today, um, you'll be able to order whatever car you want uh, with, the, with an auto capability embedded in. And then you'll even be able to configure it and say, you know, this is my teenage son or daughter driving. Uh, this is my own driving. And this is, uh, you know, my aging parent driving because the system will adjust dynamically to the driver's capabilities. Um, so we'll be able to actually 
uh, give more intervention if it's a teenager driving uh, versus a, an experienced adult that already knows um, knows how to drive well. Yeah, um, you kind of already touched on this, but um, I'm going to go a little bit deeper. Um, how good are the human drivers in general? Because I did a story with one of your customers. I don't remember which one it was, uh, like last year or so. And I, I was asking, like, how many drivers just turn it off? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're like, I don't want someone driving with me. So can you speak a little bit about that? And then how can Nato, I guess, kind of help those drivers out and make it more safe? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I say, you know, the, the traditional technology. So you look at something like lane departure warning. Um, a lot of drivers do turn those off uh, because they, they're not very accurate. They have a high false positive rate. And then that's annoying, right? You, you switch lanes. It didn't realize that you did that intentionally and it beeps or buzzes at you. And you say, this is annoying. I'm going to shut it off. And there's some insurance highway safety studies that show that actually up to half of drivers turn those systems off. In our case, because we're working with the fleets, uh, once the fleet decides to put the system in, the driver doesn't really have a, an opportunity to turn it off. But we still very much focus, as I described a moment ago, on wanting the driver to have a positive experience. Um, and so we've done deployments with thousands of drivers where we see uh, about 80% of the drivers embrace the system right away um, and take advantage of the, of the warnings, the feedback, and self-improve. So that's really this idea of empowering the drivers. We see that um, half a percent to 1% of the drivers, and this gets to your question of you know, how many, how good are human drivers, are really struggling. Sometimes it's innocent, you know, they might have a new baby and not be sleeping at night, right? We've, any of us who are parents have gone through that. And I'm sure my driving wasn't particularly good in that, in that time period. Uh, sometimes it's a medical issue. You may need glasses or you may have sleep apnea and you're falling asleep during the day. So we, we work with the fleets to make sure people are getting the right treatment in that case. And we also see that, you know, some portion of human drivers just struggle to learn to drive well. So, you know, five to 10% of drivers need extra training, need extra coaching. And that comes to the, to the first half of your question, Esther. You know, human driving isn't a single thing. It's a bunch of different skills. And, you know, you or I may know how to drive well in a particular part of the country, but may struggle in a different part of the country, right? So if you grew up in Kansas, going and driving in Manhattan is very stressful. Um, if, you, if you grew up in New York, you know, driving through northern Canada might be very stressful because it's really sparse and lonely. Uh, and same thing, of course, around the world. Driving in, in Japan, for example, versus driving in the U.S. is quite a different skill. And then within individuals, there's just like everything else, there's a lot of variability. So we see, uh, to, give you, to give you some numbers, um, a good driver versus an average driver versus a bad driver. The average driver, as if you're a consumer, will have about a collision once every 10 years. If you're a terrible driver, uh, there's a driver out there in the U.S. today, a teenage male, who will have 14 collisions this year. Uh, so that's kind of the end of the spectrum, right? That's the worst. Um, but it is not unusual for drivers, some drivers, a small percentage of drivers, to have multiple collisions per year. And they're obviously much, much worse, right? Compare three per year to one every 10 years. And then we have uh, some drivers in, in uh, FedEx that we see. Um, who have driven literally for decades without having a collision. Uh, FedEx actually gives awards uh, to those drivers because it's an amazing record. If you've driven for 40 years um, without having a collision, you are way better than the average human driver. And it's a, it's a real skill to be proud of. Um, so that gives you a sense. 
Now, come back to what Nauto's trying to do. We're trying to take the average driver or the driver that's not so good and make them a very good driver. Uh, I won't say that we're going to make everybody be that 40-year record holder who can drive forever without a collision. But we do see generally we can get about 60, 65, 70% reduction in the number of collisions. Um, and so two-thirds uh, of the collisions removed, which takes you from kind of an average driver to roughly in the top 10% of drivers, which is really good. Okay, uh, Stefan, I've been wanting to ask you this, and I just thought of this. Um, we've talked about all the benefits and also some of the challenges with uh, annoyance and intrusiveness. What are the, are there any privacy implications and how do you deal with those? Um, because you do have some something, a machine, you know, watching you as you drive. You know, privacy is a really important topic near and dear to my heart. Um, we designed our system with privacy in mind from the beginning. And if you look at a lot of the safety technologies out there, um, they have been relatively privacy intrusive, right? So if you go back in time, the older safety technologies have been coaching, like Smith system. It's a great methodology to scan, to make sure you're, look, you're looking at your mirrors, leaving yourself an out. Great set of principles for driving. There's no privacy intrusion there, right? It's a system you learn and you drive that way and you're, you're safe. If you look at some of the technologies from that era as well, you know, the seatbelt, some people might argue it's intrusive to, to say, hey, you have to wear your seatbelt, but I think most of us gotten so used to it and, and there's really not, you know, the, the hassle of putting on a seatbelt is very, very minor compared to the massive safety benefit uh, that it has. Then if you go back about 10 years, um, that's when we saw the advent of, of GPS tracking and video recording. And those two technologies ha do have a significant privacy trade-off, uh, right? If I'm tracking everywhere you go, um, you know, if it's a commercial delivery vehicle, it's still reasonably okay because you can actually give the customer a heads up on when their package is coming and they, and they love that. But if it's a personal car, you don't want to be tracked, you know, where you go uh, and, you know, because it will reveal where you go to church. It will reveal, you know, who you visit in, in the middle of the night. Um, and those are all very, very, and where you stay at home, right, where you park overnight. So, that's where it gets sensitive. Video, it's usually the interior video that is sensitive in, in kind of a classic dash cam. Um, and I've talked to a lot of drivers and they say, look, I don't, want to, I don't want my supervisor to know when I'm singing or if I'm picking my nose, that's embarrassing. Uh, I don't want anybody to see that. Uh, and we agree. So in our system, um, because it's, it's a whole new generation, it's really computer vision based. And it is an algorithm uh, looking in real time for certain um, risks and behaviors only. So we don't care if you pick your nose, right? We don't have an algorithm that says, oh, you know, Stefan's picking his nose today. Uh, but we do look for, did you fall asleep? Um, you know, did you not see the stop sign where you're not paying attention? Um, and and were, were you, you know, talking on your phone while driving, which is super dangerous. Um, so it's very selective in what it's detecting. And the other part is we're giving the driver a chance to self-correct. So it's not about recording you to show it to somebody else. It's about saying, hey, Sean, put that phone down now and you know drive safely. Um, and it, it's empowering the driver to make that adjustment. Now, our system does for critical events have the ability to create a log. So for example, the, the, the classic use cases, you have a collision you actually want a record of what happened in that collision. Because in the, in our world of the commercial drivers, they're generally very, very good drivers. So most of the time, 80% of the time, 90% of the time, we can exonerate the driver and prove that the collision wasn't their fault. You know, somebody else ran a red light or ran a stop sign. 
And the drivers actually love that. In that case, it's not continuous recording, right? It's not, you know, uploading video and there's nobody secretly watching you drive. But if you have a, a collision, having a record of what happened in the, you know, the 10 seconds leading up to that collision uh, can substantially reduce your insurance costs, can reduce your payouts um, and can prove your innocence. And you have to remember for a commercial driver, not only are you at risk of getting hurt, but your job's at stake. Uh, you know, most fleets um, will terminate you if you have, you know, sometimes, rarely is it one collision, but usually if you have more than one collision, um, your job's literally at stake um, and you could be fired. So we want to try to prevent that. We want to protect the drivers and keep them, keep them safe. So moving on now to, I guess, the phrase of the year, generative AI, right? With the, not that I don't want to say discovery, but with this wave of generative AI, um, do you apply it anyway in Nautilus technology and how do you envision it changing your technology in the next few years? Yeah. So generative AI has gotten a lot of attention because it's, it's easy to interact with, right? You can go to any of the websites and, and type in a query and say, you know, write me an essay on uh, Martin Luther King and what he was doing. Um, or, you know, how do I, how do I send a package at the post office? So it's a great tool. Those models are focused on language. So understanding what you say, understanding what text says, and then, and then generating that for you. Or in some cases now there's tools focused on visual images and, and art. We actually use very, if you look deep inside our technology, the, the neural networks that are running there are very similar in architecture. Um, you know, they're taking individual risks and assembling a picture of them and then putting together essentially a risk image, a risk map of what's going on right now and how dangerous it is. That. And when we, when we visualize it, it does almost look like a modern art painting where you've got, you know, red for certain risks in some areas and, you know, blue in areas that are not risky. But it's not a language model uh, because we're not, uh, you know, the risks we're trying to detect are visual risks. So it's, a, it's about identifying a vehicle or a pedestrian or a sign. So it's a little different. The deep inside the architecture is similar. So we're, we've been doing that already for eight years. Um, you know, the, the language piece, I think, is what has gotten so much attention now because it makes it so easy for people to interact with it. We are looking at the language part for the future as well. So, for example, right now, when we detect a risk, it's the, um, the box that we put on the windshield talking to you. So it will say, you know, please pull over, uh, you're falling asleep, take a break or uh, pull over to use your phone if you're distracted by the phone. But it is not yet an interactive agent that you can talk with. Um, and so that's one of the things we're looking at adding to use the, the language focused generative AI. So you could say, hey, I need a gas station near here, and it would walk you through how to get to a gas station. Or if it's giving you feedback and says, you know, you're starting to feel sleepy, please find a place to take a break. You could then actually ask it back and say, what's the best place to take a break near here? Uh, and it would give you that guidance. So we're going to integrate the kind of classic generative AI that people are now so excited about as well. But we're using the same um, neural network technology already today for the for the visual risk assessment. Okay, I get that. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. The, the, uh, the language part of it is really not integral to your system. So not, like not today because it's, you know, it's, it's relatively limited set of things that we give feedback on. Um, you know, we're generally not having a broad dialogue, but there are definitely use cases of, of finding things, locating things, understanding what's going on. You know, even simple things like, is there a traffic jam up ahead, right? You could ask and then it would say, yes, you know, if you in 2.3 miles, there's a traffic jam, but you could take this detour. 
one of our goals, and this is where the language part is important, is not to show you screens or visual things while you're driving. Um, because even Google Maps, as wonderful a tool as it is, and, and I use Google Maps all the time, um, if you're if you're trying to enter something, trying to find something in Google Maps while you're actually driving, uh, it's it's very very dangerous. It takes your eyes off the road. So it's really best to to look it up ahead of time, uh, figure out where you're going, and and then drive. Okay, so you, you talked before about the rough uh, cost, four hundred fifty dollars. Maybe that's wholesale cost, but you say that's expensive from a consumer. Uh, point of view, but um, I would argue that you know you people buy radar detectors, car people buy radar detectors all the time. People uh, add on to their cars, but in any event, four hundred fifty dollars sounds to me a lot cheaper than turning on a Tesla system or creating um, some of these EV systems. So, how do you control costs for your safety systems? Do you produce them at scale? Do you have uh, economies of scale? Is it a large scale uh, industrial production? situation or how, how do you how do you control your own costs yeah um i mean part of it is scale right we're in 800 fleets literally hundreds of thousands of vehicles um and so that helps we also build on an existing supply chain if you if you think about what we're doing the core architecture of our device is really quite similar to a cell phone it's, it's got connectivity uh to be able to uh you know talk to the cloud and understand things like what's the weather report collisions it's got a map embedded in it so very much the way that you have uh, google maps on your phone or apple maps on your phone we have a, a map in our device uh, that knows where you're going it's got the gps capability that you'd have on your phone and then in our case we use the image sensors to, to understand the scene in real time. So it's not for, you know, shooting photos and videos of your friends in our case, uh, but it's for understanding what's happening on the road and what's happening in the, in the vehicle. So part of the way we keep costs down is we're using uh, contract manufacturers uh, in a couple different locations in Asia uh, to assemble these devices. We build our own software, so the software that, that we put in is uh, is created by Nauto, kind of similar to the to the Apple or uh, Android model, if you like, where you know the software is developed in Cupertino, in our case it's Palo Alto, uh, but then the assembly is done in Asia, and then the devices are shipped um, to the U.S. So that's a big part, and we also focus very much on on trying to again in the spirit of making this technology available to everyone. We focus on actually reducing the cost uh, of the system, and so we take advantage of both performance improvements. Um, for example, you know newer Sony image sensors that get better resolution, better night vision, um, and we continue to fine tune and improve the the AI as well. I should say for the commercial use cases. There's the one-time cost of putting the system in, but there's also a subscription. Um, so we charge per vehicle per year uh, for a commercial use case uh, because the business will want analysis and reporting and so forth. And that's a, a typical SaaS software as a service uh, subscription. Yeah, if, if you're not SaaS these days, then you're not really in, in, in the software business. So I, that's I right. um, How did your academic training and your background prepare you to found Nato? Yeah, it's really, you know, in hindsight, it looks well planned, but it was really more of a coincidence. Um, I followed my passion in, in graduate school, and I was interested in um, how humans think and how they reason. That's why I did my PhD in cognitive science. At that time, this is 30 years ago, uh, neural networks were just beginning. It was a, a still relatively obscure research field. Um, and so that's part of what I trained on. Um, 
And it was really to try and understand how perception happens. A lot of the early work was inspired by the human brain. You know, how do we actually see things? How do we sense uh, when something's off or unusual or dangerous? And so it was very closely tied to research on, on human perception, human physiology, uh, neuroscience. Um, and a lot of the early models were focused on trying to understand the brain better. What was interesting is that I then went and worked on, on different areas. I built a business uh, around uh, internet and web design and web presence. I did uh, you know, two, um, uh, almost two decades at McKinsey as a senior partner, mostly helping companies build new businesses and scale new technologies of other kinds, solar, LED, uh, you know, electric vehicles. Um, but what was interesting is when, when AI came back, so to speak, uh, you know, out of the obscure research field and started being used for, for many commercial applications, you know, the early uses actually were in call centers uh, where, you know, you could, the thing we've all now experienced, right, you could punch in numbers and get routed or you can use your voice to verify who you are. Um, and then, of course, with generative AI now, it's everywhere, right? Any, any, uh, you know, any website you go to has some kind of agent that can answer questions for you and chat with you. Um, so eight years ago, um, I hit on this idea of can you use these neural networks um, not just to, to, you know, see what's going on, but to help the drivers. Um, and that's really where it came full circle. You know, I happen to have. That is a research and academic background. Um, I'd seen lots of large companies struggle uh, with deploying employees all over the world to, to install, to deliver, to fix things, to maintain things. And so those two kind of came together. The last piece, and this is really every, every founder has their aha moment. Uh, mine was when I was a professor at Stanford, I was biking to campus uh, from my house and um, a couple times a week, I would get into really dangerous situations as a biker. Um, and it was almost always people almost running me over because they were not paying attention. Uh, cell phone use, talking to their kids, uh, you know, eating, drinking coffee in the morning. Um, and so I started getting curious, you know, how much of this kind of distraction is really out there. Um, but a lot of the federal and state databases underreported or show almost nothing. Um, and my experience was very different. It's, it's all over the place. We're all distracted while driving. And so that became the inspiration of, can we also use these neural networks uh, to help detect when a driver is distracted? Um, and the rest, as they say, the rest is history. So that's why Nato came to be. Um, I wanted to know, Stefan, if you ever thought that, is there a way for maybe like electric vehicles or autonomous vehicles to maybe have like a way to coexist with your technology? Have you ever thought about that? Absolutely. First of all, electric vehicles are 100% compatible. A lot of the deployments we have today are in electric vehicles. The partnership I talked about with, with Brightdrop, um, they're selling electric delivery vans and, and we're in those. Um, and so there's no, um, there's no issue at all. We love electric vehicles. Um, and you, know, you can make an electric vehicle safer the same way that you make an internal combustion vehicle safer. Now for autonomy, Interestingly, we have some customers that are in the autonomous uh, vehicle development business as well, because we provide capabilities of understanding what the passengers and, and uh, safety drivers in the vehicles are doing. Um, we can actually provide insights to them about what kinds of mistakes human drivers make, what kinds of collisions they'll encounter. One of the things that's, that's really interesting there is, um, you know, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, collisions are very rare. So you have to drive, you know, hundreds of million miles to see collisions. 
we've protected fleets for over 3 billion miles. So we've seen a lot of different kinds of collisions near misses. Most of the people developing autonomous vehicles have driven either hundreds of thousands or a few million miles. Uh, you know, Waymo, Google's subsidiary is, is probably the furthest ahead and they've driven tens of millions of miles. Um, and so having seen billions of miles is a huge uh, help because we see some rare phenomena that you still want your autonomous vehicle to be able to handle, uh, but that autonomous vehicles haven't seen before. So I think in the, coming back to your question about the, the long run, you know, these things will coexist for a long time, um, maybe even forever. And, and I'll tell you why. The first is uh, there are definitely right now um, environments, situations, weather conditions where AVs don't know how to handle that situation yet. So you need human drivers uh, for sure. And you want those human drivers to still have the benefit of the, of the computer vision and AI uh, that we provide. But a lot of our fleets, 85% of our fleets, the human is actually mainly something other than a driver. So if you think about a utility, you know, it's a lineman who's going to fix your transformer, who's going to read your meter, uh, who's going to you know, make sure that your house is wired correctly. Um, they have an essential job uh, that's critical for us as a society that they need to do when they get to the job site. So you can't actually, the kind of classic naive use case of autonomous vehicles is, well, just remove the driver. But this is a person who's going to have to do something when they get there. So you can't actually remove the, the person from the utility truck. Same thing if they're um, you know, coming to maintain your air conditioner. You still need that person there. So in our case, uh, you know, 85% of the vehicles, uh, the person driving is actually a technician or an installer or an expert of some kind. Um, and they won't really be uh, able to, uh, you know, quit doing that job. It's essential for, for the whole industry, for the whole way that, you know, our civilization works. So when you talk about autonomous driving, I think there are use cases that have gotten the most attention, long haul trucking. Um, where that person's job is really mainly driving. There's a few other things they do. You know, they make sure they load. They make sure that, that the truck is safe the whole time. Um, but those are the roles where eventually I think autonomous vehicles will drive. The autonomous truck can drive, you know, 23, 20, almost 24 hours a day. It still has to uh, fuel or recharge occasionally and has to be maintained some of the time. Uh, but the vast majority of trips around the country are people going someplace to do something. Um, and so I don't think that people will go away. And yes, you could say, well, you can give an autonomous vehicle to the utility lineman so that they can, you know, uh, not have to drive. But then what are they going to do? They're going to watch uh, Netflix while they're driving to fix the transformer. Um, you know, most of these uh, jobs, the, the, the person in the vehicle will get paid. Um, and so the utility will want them to do something that, that is actually adding value and, and useful. Okay, so I have one last question, and then I'll wrap it up. And out of curiosity, I think you drive a Tesla, but what do you really like to drive? <laughs> I do drive a Tesla. I like my Tesla. Um, I, By the way, I don't use the autonomous software in the Tesla. Uh, I've, I've tested it, and I've, I've tried it out, uh, but I don't think it's ready yet. Um, I've, I've sat in a lot and driven in, or been driven in a lot of autonomous vehicles, and, and I enjoy the technology, but... I'm not ready to turn my life over to it completely uh, yet. Um, in terms of what I like driving, uh, I actually love trains. You're going to laugh. Uh, so I'm a big fan of, of getting around by trains. I, I hope one day we'll actually have California high-speed rail here. Uh, it's taking a long, long time. 
But having grown up in Europe, uh, you know, I love the ability to take a train two hours away. You can read a great book um, and, uh, and and meet interesting people and get to your destination right downtown. Um, so that's probably my favorite form of transportation. If you had asked me 30 years ago, I would have said I love airplanes too. I was very excited about airplane flying as a kid. But I've done so much business travel for work now on crowded airplanes with delays and, and you know, luggage everywhere um, that I don't find airplane travel as much fun as I used to. Neither does Esther. Anyway, thanks for being with us today, Stefan. That was super interesting. Um, so for our listeners, uh, please tune into the Targeting AI podcast at Tech Target News or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other major podcast platforms. Again, Stefan, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye. My pleasure. It's great talking to both of you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Please remember to share on your favorite social media platform and leave a review. For more on today's topic, please check out the Tech Target News website.